Hey everyone, welcome back to Bending Boundaries, a podcast sponsored by the Northwest Social Science Doctoral Training Partnership, which straddles topics of equality, diversity and inclusion within universities and doctoral education. In this podcast, we talk about the amazing new research being done by PhD researchers, and we discuss our experiences of being parts of groups who are not often represented within academia. With monthly guest interviews, we discuss a variety of themes which relate to the research being done by PhD students. So the theme for today's episode is intimacy and personal connections to research. Today, I chat to Max Davis, a gender studies PhD researcher at the University of Brighton, who is researching gender creative parenting, a style of parenting that they, outside of PhD life, also employ with their own child. Now, let's start this episode of Bending Boundaries with a quick catch up with our hosts. So, what were everyone's best and worst parts of the week? Megan. So the best part was I graduated from my master's, which I had to do <gasps> as part of the PhD. Congratulations! So Thank you. It, it felt a bit weird because it's like my third graduation. So I felt quite casual about it. You can never like, have it. Really, yeah, I was like, I don't really care who Been comes. There, done or, that. <laughs> it's just like whatever. But it was, um, it was still very nice. And Liverpool has a lot of nice like picture spots. So um I got cute pictures and my sister and my mum came and it was really nice. Amazing. And saw some of the um, people I did my master's with who I haven't seen since we um, finished. So it was it was oh, nice. It was a like fun experience. And also there was... Um, I, I think I did have... I don't know if I was emotional, but it, it made me happy seeing a lot of the other, the PhD people graduating because there was a few of them and I was mm. like, oh my God, <laughs> they have a red robe. It's going to be different. <laughs> like, I don't know. It made me kind of excited about one day doing the PhD or finishing it. Yeah, when you graduate from a PhD, you look like kind of royalty, yeah. don't you? You have like a really fancy outfit. Yeah, so I was like, oh, that's going to be fun. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was yeah the best part. It was a good day. Um, and the worst part of my week is, and this puzzle was a gift and I like doing puzzles. <laughs> um, so I don't want to be bad bad <laughs> the puzzle because I've enjoyed it very much um, to the person who bought it to me, <laughs> for, for me. But um, it's, like a, a thousand piece puzzle that's really small like it's like the smallest thousand piece puzzle or whatever um and I just I can't do the sky and it's getting on my nerves I've been like doing it for like <laughs> a week usually it's during the pandemic I kind of got into puzzles <laughs> and then I would like listen to podcasts do puzzles um like a complete nerd um <laughs> I've like finished most of it but then there's just the sky and it's just it's so hard like actually like my I mean I can show you all the like pieces are here <laughs> oh my god they're so small it's just on my um they are actually really tiny and it's just getting I just want to finish <laughs> and I don't want to give up but it's actually extremely distracting and I'm kind of procrastinating doing the puzzle so I'm like oh I can't bother to uh, why is why is this such a classic like PhD <laughs> procrastination it's just a stereotype that I'm fulfilling <laughs> Mm, to be like losing your mind while doing a tiny mm. puzzle that's ruining everything else. It's just like put it life. away. Just put it away. I can't. I don't want to break it. It's taken too long. <laughs> but yeah, that's me. That's me. I, I wouldn't have any any patience. I would have probably destroyed the unfinished puzzle <laughs> halfway and been like, yeah. "I've been there. I've done this. Never ever see you again." Puzzle. Mm. <laughs> 
no patience. <laughs> and, I, and I wish I, I probably will because it's actually, it's actually getting in the way of me doing things. <laughs> but so, but also like the feeling of like you know, literally just finishing a puzzle, finding the solution mm. is so satisfying. But yeah. exactly, I just want that feeling. I'm chasing that feeling. <laughs> But at what cost? You know? <laughs> uh, Losing my sanity. The puzzle did it. It's like get out, get out of the house and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Saren? Worst and best parts of the week. Um. Well, my oven has been broken oh, for no. six weeks. Um, classic renting life, but it did get fixed this week, which is definitely the best part of my week because. In my house, we do um, survive quite heavily on potato-based mm. goods. So um, we can now eat our potatoes, you know, freely and without fear, <laughs> um, which is good. I had re- the potatoes are safe, I had reached everybody. the point the where potatoes was... are safe. <laughs> <laughs> the potatoes are not mm. safe. I'm eating them. Um, yeah, we had got to the point where I was like, frying hash browns just because oh, wow. I needed them yeah. so badly but um yeah so that is definitely the best part of my week and nothing nothing can ruin my week now I've got <laughs> that, so, you know take that worst part of the week <laughs> oh. <laughs> what about um, you Eva? so worst parts So yeah, um, I guess it's been a while since Christmas and New Year's happened um, and I actually went to Germany visiting my family. So I guess the worst part has just been like traveling back and I just mean the actual act of like packing and going through customs and every time it's just a very anxiety inducing and stressful process and take off your shoes, take off your belt don't take off those shoes. You don't need to take off that belt. And it's like, uh. <laughs> can we please get this over with? And like in a haste, just pack out the laptops and the phones and any chargers and headphones. And it's just, I don't know what it is about customs. I find it terror inducing. So yeah. Mm. And also like the fear of like standing in long queues and making it on time. Will the airplane be delayed or anything? But we made it. We are back. Um, <laughs> and the best part, it sounds really weird, but you know, I'm really into books. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just love fantasy shift of romances. And I just recently finished a series. Um, the last book was titled Glow by Raven Kennedy. And then I had this thought I was thinking about the evolution of book talk because I personally have started using like TikTok as a search engine. I use it more. Totally. I use it more than Google though. I'm like, um, okay, so where to buy XYZ? Or I think the last thing I I actually searched was like uh, dark academia recommendations, right? Things we would like maybe Ooh. put in Google. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't them. use TikTok, so I'm, I'm like, how? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, and then I had this maybe epiphany, call it maybe a geeky, nerdy epiphany. I'm like, there must be articles that talk about book talk, right? And so like for like context, book talk is basically people posting microvlogs of their opinions on like books that 
they recently have read, things they liked, things they didn't like. And like it has become really an evolution where people like use super evocative language filled with emotions and even like um, choose songs to like underlay their videos with, for example, Sam Smith's Unholy. Um, not gonna <laughs> cite the lyrics here. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so yeah, there's this article that I read and it was titled Book Talk Made Me Do It, The Evolution of Reading. And it was so um, interesting because, you know, I have a very big passion for reading, both academic, but especially non-academic books, just for like mental health reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And it actually, it said that like um, children, the amount of children who were into reading before COVID was a lot less than after COVID. And especially with Book Talk, it really inspired like, um, young adults, teenagers, and even like, you know, adults like you and I to read mm. a lot more. And I don't know, that makes me really, really happy because I feel like with, with being in this really fast paced age, um, and time, sometimes we forget about the joys of like, just taking an actual physical book and reading it. And it smelled so good. The smell mm. of a book, it's so yeah. satisfying. That's my puzzle. That's my puzzle joy. The, <laughs> Your puzzle is a the, smell, the smell <laughs> of a book, right? Because we have That's so many articles as PhD students to read online. Everything is on the computer now. And like, it really gives me a headache sometimes, but... Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I so yeah, I, I will I, always I, prefer I a book. But that article made me really happy. And that was the best part of my week. That is cool. I do know, I feel like um, my sister was, who's like young, <laughs> was like, oh, um, she never read books before. But I think after the pandemic, I think it was that same time period. She just started reading loads of books all the time. And I was like, yeah. very proud because I'm a little, I used to be more of a bookworm yeah. because I had time. But it's, it makes me happy when I hear people read. Yeah, and also connects people, <laughs> especially during mm. lockdown, because you, you know, all of these. So I got back into reading physical books again when I had COVID during lockdown. And, you know, I discovered these like online book clubs and, you know, I would just turn my audio off, turn my camera off and join them just to see what people have to say. And it's a different kind of connection with other people. But I think it's it can be meaningful to have like virtual book friends or people who may have specific opinions on books. I think it's fascinating. So um, is there anything PhD related that we've, you know, stumbled across or read that made us think? Sarah, do you want to go first? Because <laughs> I don't know. I can't think. Um, I think I'm at this point now where I'm about to finish my um, fieldwork and um, I'm kind of trying kind of transition out of doing fieldwork back into sort of writing up my results and doing my like analysis of what I found during my fieldwork. Amazing! You're at an amazing like, stage! I'm scared though because it feels like I don't know it feels like I've been doing fieldwork for a really long time like longer than I have actually been doing it and I've sort of forgotten what life is like outside of it. <laughs> join um, us! <laughs> I know I've forgotten who I am. Um, but yeah, I, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to be done and have a bit more structure back in my life because I feel like fieldwork can be a little bit like, um, I don't know, like tumultuous mm -hmm. in a way. Like you're not always sure. It's quite like stoppy and starty and I, I really do well with a routine. So I'm excited to 
hopefully be able to instill some more um like yeah routine and structure in my life that sounds amazing i'm just very excited for you because looking at what actually you'll get to find like themes and just mm. patterns and again relates all back to like megan's puzzle right so <laughs> yeah. that's i don't know that's so amazing. I <laughs> don't worry saren you will finish <laughs> i will finish that sky <laughs> oh that's amazing yeah i'm trying to think of um well i have a nice phd moment because a lot of the phd is reading um and i was reading a lot and sometimes you feel like you're not doing much um but i had to do mm. a what well, i wanted to do a presentation to my supervisor about my reading and that was a really quite fun process because i put down put together a presentation and i just wrote down probably about 30 just random words that have kind of popped out to me in the reading and then I just started writing down like what I thought of them. And it was like, oh, I actually have absorbed something <laughs> through this reading. Like, oh, I have an opinion mm. about uh, like, well, because obviously I'm reading about like fat phobia and everything. And it was like, what some of the words were like race, childhood, responsibility, mm. locations, places, and all that stuff. And then mm. I was like, oh yeah, the reason I thought that was interesting was because of this. And I don't know, it's like putting it together via that method mm. of doing it. Like, mm. I do. I like pres presenting things, and I think it's kind of like writing, where it it's a part of the le learning process. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, if you present it, then you kind of understand it a bit more. Yeah. So yeah. that was mm. a that was something which I was like, okay, <laughs> I have actually been doing something with this reading. It's not just me. Yeah. Being mm. free and not not thinking. That's amazing. I when mm. I think of it now, um, right before the Christmas break, I actually finished the pilot phase of my data collection. So I conducted Ooh. five interviews and so I was thinking about doing like an initial initial analysis with like um preliminary themes just to see where am I going what's popping up and yeah so I think that's news so, that's really cool news. <laughs> like five interviews as well like that's that's really good for especially yeah, it's awesome. quite a short period of time I think yeah like I would say month. yeah I, I yeah, that's really good oh my yeah, god but but I'm I'm a little bit anxious going forward. I'm like, mm, is it gonna slow down now? I just need like thirty more. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, I think it's but about like this pace. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's about just taking a breath, taking a step back, and not overthinking it because my brain goes a million miles an hour, worrying about things that haven't happened. Like it's almost like I live in the future. So I'm really trying to dial it back, but it's it's difficult. And I think a lot of us feel that way, especially, you know, with like um yeah. Just be yeah, being a yeah, any other interview thing, it's kinda of like you're you're reaching out into the real world and like being like, Can I do this part? And it's like, Oh I can yes. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you're that that's pretty good. Well done. Those sound like really good exercises that you both did because they're like, I don't know, often in the PhD it can feel, as you were saying, like there's not very much structure mm. or I don't know. I definitely relate to that thing that you were saying, Megan, where you're just like, I'm just reading and like, what does that mm. mean? Like, and it's it's cool to sometimes take a step and review what you've done, whether it's, you know, your research or, or, or your reading or whatever. And, and I found that really helpful, like halfway through my field with writing a big report about everything that I'd covered and suddenly being like, oh, I do, I have mm -hmm. done some stuff. <laughs> like, even though you are doing stuff, sometimes it really feels mm -hmm. like you're not, I don't know. 
yeah, it's definitely like a process of, well, I guess it's like you're learning to do it. I think I heard it from everyone mm. though. Almost everyone I talked to is like, oh yeah, and, like you feel a bit, I don't know if it's dizzy or like lost. And then you're like, mm. no, I, I know, I know my way through it. Mm. So this was our catch up. Now let's go on to the interview with Saren and Max. So we like to start with just like a little icebreaker, um, mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. would you would you rather question? I'm not sure if it is okay. actually breaking the ice or the opposite, but um, <laughs> embarrassing everyone before they start. Exactly. Um, so the question to you, Max, is would you rather eat your favorite food three times mm-hmm. a day forever and ever and ever for every mm-hmm. meal, or never eat it again? Mm, probably never again because it with with probably with my ADHD I wouldn't be able to physically eat it every day for the rest of my life because it would get boring after a while so I think the the inevitable outcome would be that I wouldn't eat it again anyway what is your favorite food sushi I would say like like vegan or vegetarian sushi you could win me over with sushi yeah I guess it's quite versatile (laughs) isn't it but the ADHD brain would be like no Okay, cool. Well, there we go. Broken the ice. <laughs> Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about your research? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so my name is Max. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I identify as non-binary. I work for Arden University as a full-time lecturer, and I also study as a PhD student at the University of Brighton. Um, and I'm studying, or my interest area is uh, gender-created parenting or gender-open parenting depends on the term that you use um, so essentially that's it's looking at children's experiences within gender-created families so that's raised without a gender assignment at birth or from birth should we say uh, from birth so the the parents the families limit all the gender stereotyping and gender uh, language uh, within their parenting practices shall we say people who are listening might not know much about gender creative or gender open parenting could you tell us a little bit more about how that works like practically I guess yeah so I think from birth essentially we limit the amount of documentation that's like gendered um, and obviously that can become difficult for many families they only do it to the extent that they can and sometimes uh, a lot will protest in order to change documentation but then going forth um, we limit any other gender stereotypes so we don't restrict toys or colors based on a certain characteristic we kind of allow the children to be immersed in like a creation of different things and obviously when they're very young it's going to be predominantly clothes and toys but then we also widen our language and terminology so we use predominantly neutral pronouns to begin with for the child to then um, have conversations that then go broad rather than giving them one specific pronoun in in the sense of a binary program uh, program pronoun sorry so instead of assigning them a pronoun that everyone would then just continue that throughout their entire lives we start with one which is neutral but then we use that neutral pronoun for other things and other people as well. Um, so we then do gender items. And then we try to give them um, expansion of the clothes and the wardrobe and their toys as they get older. And then we give them the knowledge of gender and gender stereotypes because it's not like we could cut it off. It's, you know, it's very much one of the huge most focal points of the world. So we give them more information about gender and more information about stereotypes. Um, but we kind of let the child lead, shall we say, clothes and their interests and their choices of toys and their activities and their friends um, and their their language and speech. So 
we give them the terms to use um, to how to approach people, how to have conversations with people, you know, to not be exclusive, um, but also to recognize that the world is quite diverse. So, you know, people may use uh, different terms to identify themselves and the child also may do. So we give them the same terms um, and they and what they mean. So then they can grow up to learn that there isn't just like boys or girls and he and she, that's it. Um, they get a diversified library of words, shall we say. Oh, and another thing, we kind of like expand on the literature and books that they have. And, um, we kind of make sure that we, or at least I do as parents, obviously going to speak for myself, but from the other parents that I speak to, to create, um, you know, literature that has like either a diverse array of pronouns or, you know, a predominantly neutral to begin with. Um, so it's kind of like creating a balance, depending on what you want as a parent, of how much you move towards the binary idea and to the more free and creative and shall we say open idea because I think when people hear about gender creative parenting like whoa 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 Mm -hmm. slow down that's a bit too much for me but there are different parenting styles which you can apply yourself to there's lots of different styles and you can pick and choose your things that make sense for you and your family yeah absolutely because at the end of the day who am I to sit here and dictate what everyone's supposed to do uh, <laughs> to do like I can I could tell you based on my research that I think it's a good idea but then I can also tell you other things from my research that I feel from what I know as a parent a gender creative parent and um, you know as an academic and yeah this would be my specialism is that I really think that children would eventually identify with agenda and I'm not just talking about a binary I'm just an identity they will mm. they will settle with an identity even if that identity is fluid or um creative or non-binary or a binary or transgender it's like they they probably will within the let's say given uh, like at the moment age range where children start to give themselves a gender identification that's not to say like all children would be very much like affirmed at that age I just think overall it's kind of it it would happen Mm -hmm. because we live in such a like a, a world with identity and like identification and because there's a lot of binary identification um there's a lot of these words and terminology that's been thrown around that it will just become common within a person's um like a child's language anyway eventually um you would really have to live on an island in the middle of nowhere to avoid like reset (laughs) yeah to reset that but you can and as a parent we want to do the best for our children you can do the best for them by limiting it because we know that extreme gender and extreme gender stereotypes can have extreme effects and Mm -hmm. gender stereotyping can have detrimental effects so the research has proven the more like neutralized the parenting is in regards to gender and stereotyping the better the results in the child's views on gender you are extreme gendering you have extreme um, negative reactions and I think extreme limitations of gender stereotypes is going to have extreme positive impacts on a child's outlook on gender but um, yeah there are a few a few different styles um, and I think it's important to understand these different styles because I think everyone thinks gender creative parenting is just like poof come out of nowhere just like mm-hmm. that 
yeah, where does this come from? How are these crazy people just suddenly disappearing in the middle, you know, out of uh, nowhere? And why didn't we know about this before? And et cetera, et cetera. But unless you're part of that mindset, it, yeah. you, I think, won't understand where it's stemmed from. I hear some people, you know, when I talk to them, ah, oh, my mother, um, she was, she really was just like, she let us do whatever we wanted to do in the sense of like um, the boys still held dolls' houses and, and the girls were still able to climb trees, etc. And I'm like, that's because she was probably part of the non-sexist parenting movement, okay, of like the the 70s. People they they tell me these stories, and I'm just like, if you consider where your parents were coming from, what aspects you put into your parenting, so then how it's developed over the years. So you have the non-sexist parenting of the 70s, um, where mothers were trying to encourage their daughters to do more, to achieve more, to access more, mm-hmm. um, to bring them up to what they felt like was the, or to allow them to have the same level uh, of uh, achievements or opportunities as uh, their sons and the boys. Um, and then there was this like big wave um, to recognize that women and girls should be able to have as much as the boys and men because um, when we talk about the idea of sex and gender being different, this was to draw that movement that the classification of men and women in society shouldn't be drawn on gender because that means that women couldn't do or access certain things purely because of the gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so this allowed them to to show that they still could regardless of their gender. Um, mm-hmm. But then they realized that it became quite problematic in a sense that having encourage, encouraging girls to do well and to push them forward, that their sons were still immersed in deep gender stereotypes, mm. you know, like boys don't cry and um, they don't show their emotions and they're very tough and strong, etc. Um, so then came the wave of gender neutral parenting, which neutralized how parents responded to both children. Um, so it became like this very same, as in if you encourage your daughters to be able to express emotions, you did so for your sons. Mm. Um, and so that balance, uh, they, they create, try to create a balance there. Um, if your daughters were able to play with um, uh, like building toys, your sons should be able to play with dolls' houses. Mm-hmm. So um, they allowed them to toys. Um, but both these parent parenting roles still gendered their children. Mm-hmm. So this this kept them very open to gender policing. So as soon as those children left their house, um, people will then gender them respectively mm-hmm. to that specific gender. Um, and so that's when you create these like problematic situations. So the, the research showed that um, these children did have more open views about gender, but more about what men and women could do, but not so much what boys and girls could do because their experience outside the house showed them that boys and girls are still very much confined in what they should or could be able to do. Mm-hmm. But they perceived that there must be some uh, like further idea of what, say men and women could do so it must be when they were older um and then when we think then about the gender policing outside um and we consider that the the gender and labeling we put on the children um would have an effect on then the stereotyping outside the home so we got to limit is what well, we got to expand so we can't just keep it to the house because children can't stay in the house and within the detachment of the, of the family it's got to get wider than this. It's got to go into the 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 social sphere of their 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 social sphere. Um, so 
if we neutralize then terminology by limiting the gender assignment we put onto the children, at least even if people gender that person because they perceive them to be a particular gender, at least that even if it's not like completely neutral, that they're getting a 100% just free reign, they're getting bits of information that they can put together to be this generally starts to mean this and this starts to mean that but also it can also mean this sometimes and it can also mean that sometimes so it can they can build upon working out information about actually it doesn't really matter what you give me in, in regards to an identity I'm still able to do what it is I actually like and I enjoy um as long as they're able to participate in those kind of things so we we limit the gender assignment from birth and then we hope that then they the, the sphere widens for the children um and then obviously most children are still very young for us to consider how it would or how they would continue into adulthood for example mm-hmm. um but essentially that's where it's at now so it's kind of developed from the 70s to the 80s and gender neutral parenting continued um but it didn't really do very much it kind of just stuck there Mm-hmm. Um, until like this then wave of gender creative parenting like gender open parenting um, uh, came forward in I think 2017 which where like it picked up the most media attention um, yeah and then it kind of just kind of went on from there and mm-hmm. I kind of find it quite interesting um, that I think some people don't like the idea of gender creative parenting but still do like non-sexist parenting or gender neutral parenting um, but I think we have to consider how much of their desire to disrupt gender stereotypes is like overridden by a layer of anxiety mm-hmm. because each of us are so, or sometimes we can hold on to ideas of, of gender quite yeah. firmly. So, um, yeah, I think I, I read something that um, a gender creative child is only as creative as the adult, the, the creative adult. So the more creative you are, the more creative your child is able to be. Um, that's not to say that they won't define themselves in a binary idea, but they have the ability to be to, to be creative. If you're only li- like, if you confine yourself to disrupt stereotypes to a point, your children probably only go to that point. Mm-hmm. You can encourage them to go outside that point if you want, you know. Um, but you need to be as creative as you essentially want them to be as well. So. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Those those are the kind of styles I think that have unraveled over the years, and it's quite interesting to see to be honest. Yeah, that's cool to hear about. Um, so, how did you come to do a PhD about this? Like, you clearly know a lot about it, but um, <laughs> why why in the form of like academia? Uh, so I I jumped on doing a master's degree in 2018, and obviously I had a dissertation to do, um, and at the time I wasn't really sure what to do it on. Because a lot of people on Facebook were like, hello, the answer is stand, like staring you right in the face. Why don't you do it on gender creative parenting? And I was like, yeah, but that just seems so obvious. You know, that just seems so obvious. Um, and then I was just like, but then it is obvious. Maybe that is something I should be doing because it, the, the research is so limited. So um, at least I'm, at least I have a lot of knowledge about it and I have experience to come from. At the time, were you, um, you were a parent already and you were like posting about it on social media and stuff yes correct so I think uh River was probably about by the time I decided to do it for my dissertation about one years old one mm-hmm. and a bit so yeah I had been a parent for at least a year uh, so I already had some like experience but I thought that's quite fascinating but then I also thought to myself 
if I do this research and this research comes up with or comes with results that because, you know, you've got loads of people on social media, you know, saying that this is abuse or um, this is not good for the children and these kind of people should be um, locked away, etc. And I think, OK, I see there's very strong opinions and there's always strong opinions, especially on social media anyway. Um, but I thought at least if I was doing right by River, surely I would want to know the results of this kind of parenting, because if it did, it did overall have negative results. I would want to know, surely, mm. if I oh. if I if I consider myself one of the limited people currently at the time taking um, undertaking research that, that I would consider, then this probably would be a good opportunity for me. If I would like to develop my parenting, I can also develop my knowledge about my parenting, um, but I could do it firsthand both. So if for some reason I find because I don't, it's not like I experiment on, experiment on river per se. I don't do those kind of things. What I'm doing is looking at research as a whole um, because you can't just look at one result. I always uh, analyze my parenting every day. Like, oh, what did I do here? What did I do there? Which I assume that a lot of parents do. And that could be just as small as, did I give them too much ice cream today? Or did I handle that situation well? Did we both handle it? What could I have done better? But it could be also like when it came to like gender queer parenting you know I'm I'm a mask presenting and River has a lot of like cousins who like particular cartoons and so have a particular interest and it was predominantly one you know area and focused like Paw Patrol Marvel superheroes etc and so like with River just wearing sweatpants and, and jumpers you know I just really think of it anything of it until I started to realize that everyone then started calling River a boy and I thought to myself am I doing them a favor here by going with that flow or am I just making it easier for myself because I'm not going out of my way to then think, oh, maybe I will, you know, put, not push them, but like migrate them to other things. I'm just going with what they like, which if you're a parent, you sometimes do. But if we want to consider that uh, we want to diversify their kind of um, ideas and interests, we kind of do need to give them things that they've never seen before, or haven't really had interest in. So, and I used to have dresses when they were very little um, and then they kind of like migrated out of them. And I thought to myself, I really need to start bringing that back in. Um, so I started bringing that back in and they started watching some uh, movies at school at the, by the nursery at the time, like Frozen. And then that kind of just like swiftly changed this whole like dynamic of like how with this presentation as well. Like not the fast, it was like a period of time, but it's, they still have very much a very uh, strong interest in like Port Patrol and Marvel superheroes, but they also just as much have an interest in like Frozen and Elsa and um, wearing like Disney princess dresses and superhero outfits. So it really then attached onto actually they like a lot of things rather than me thinking that's all they really like. Um, so yeah, I analyzed my parenting quite a bit and. I think about it quite a lot and I think I forgot my original point now what we're we talking about um oh yeah why, why I did it for PhD so yeah so I analyze everything so um of course if this kind of parenting style is new I thought um I, I don't think it's new to me personally now that I'm, I'm a PhD and researching it but generally parenting is kind of new to everyone I thought to myself then I I, I think I would like to know first 
firsthand about it in other research and study it and and I think because I have quite an analytical mind and that I look into everything I really think I would do it some justice like to really look into it so with my master's degree I ended up getting a very good um, grade overall that I didn't think I was gonna get and then I was like huh I can't just stop here now because that wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing myself any justice if I just stopped there mm-hmm. um so then I said to myself, well, I'm only going to apply for Brighton. And if I don't get in, then I'm not going to apply for anywhere else because I don't really want to be doing it anywhere else. And I'd rather have this kind of degree with um, the backing of the the school that I'm in, like the Brighton um, Gender and Sexuality School. Um, anyway, needless to say, I got in. <laughs> so that was good. Um, and then, yeah, I, I decided that actually I think this is my calling to specialise. And I think this is what I want to specialize in. Um, I really found it quite interesting in my master's degree. And I really think that I have now so much knowledge from there, not not loads, we can't, I can't hold it all, but I've gathered so much more knowledge that if I, you know, do it again for my doctorate, even if it's just looking at a different area or even the same area, um, I would expand my knowledge so much more. And I think that... Uh, for me is a, a bonus overall and yeah so uh, and I really enjoy it I really enjoy it I really think it's um uh, it's very interesting so um, yeah that's a long story I could have <laughs> just said because I'm a parent and it interests me uh, but yeah depth wise hopefully people connect with understanding like we, we sometimes all I think we all either have a personal interest or you know a lot of us have a personal interest I think in our choice of research we do it because we we love it or we we're involved in it or something in our life happened or something happened to our friends or our family and I think uh, that's one of my my reasons is I'm just I have a very personal involvement in this um mm-hmm. but it brings obviously its difficulties because I have to I had to really situate myself in research to highlight mm-hmm. that I am a gender great parent. Um, so yeah, but yeah, that's it really. No, that's a great answer, and it leads on really well to. So for this episode, um, our theme was like intimacy in research, mm-hmm. particularly, and like personal connections. And when um, me and the other hosts were talking about it I kind of immediately thought of you because and everyone agreed like there's something like so intimate about writing about like your experience as a parent and and like you having a child who is kind of related to that research in a way and um everyone thought it just was so interesting considering everyone's research especially in social sciences is kind of personal in some way right um it's really cool to hear about something that is it feels like almost like a step further and and I I just I don't know it made me think a lot because I'm doing um, research right now and just as a trans person alone like I find it really hard to separate issues around my trans identity from my research and other things that are happening to trans people around me um, especially in the UK at the moment where things are really bad Um, and I just would love to hear a bit more about how you navigate kind of your role as one a trans person one a parent two a parent doing three a parent doing gender creative parenting um and as a researcher like all of those things sound like really heavy and hard to kind Mm. of muddle through it's important to consider because uh like my transness like my trans identity kind of thing that 
it puts forward into my parenting because I didn't want my child to go through like what I've been through. I didn't want them to like I haven't been through anything like, hugely detrimental. I just mean like the experience of it um, mm-hmm. to feel like that they had to wait so many years or to identify um, or had um, had been given these kind of this identity and then been given these toys, these clothes, these books and be told by people what they can and can't do. Because, you know, when I was a kid, I was very much a tomboy. And the amount of big more I had to go through just to play football or just to be perceived as somebody who's good at football or to be perceived as somebody who's really good at football just because they would be told that they were a girl and they were just, okay, as good as the boys. It's just like even the good things you think actually you're only doing that because you perceive generally overall like say women and girls to not be that good at these kind of things and I was just thinking I don't want my child to be like that I'd rather them to be able to perceive that they're either good or they're not so good you know we have our talents um but I don't want to restrict them because of all that I thought if if my child was going to be trans what would be the easiest and nicest way and I thought okay and that would just allow them to just be surely okay. Uh, what what can I do more? So what can I do more? So here and there. That even if my child was binary, what what would be the best thing to do? Well, allow them to do whatever it is they want to do. The same in regards to who they are, what they want to wear, what they or what they want, what sport, like sports they want to participate in. So overall, these ideas kept coming to my mind. Um, so it kind of like my 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 being trans kind of related into my parenting and then my parenting then relates into my research um because then once but I only knew about gender creative parenting because I think this is important to highlight because I saw no somebody in America um, who was on my Facebook for a very long time um every now and again I used to put like oh has anyone seen this magazine it's only in America or it's only in Canada can you please send me one and so every now and again I got sent a magazine that I, I wanted. Anyway, there came a day that a magazine in particular that I never asked for this person was just like, um, I've seen a magazine for having River. I really think you will find this quite interesting. And I said, okay, cool. Um, and so I received it and I read it and I was like, this is the parenting that I want to do. This is the parenting I want to do. Um, and so I made that decision. Um, after reading that magazine and then that was it after that I firmly was like this is what I'm going to do so uh so the so that then unraveled into my PhD with my PhD it was coming down to how I was going to undertake that research like how I was going to look at the research but also my position my position as a as a parent undertaking gender creative parenting am I going to be in or out of the research uh, am I going to put my position strongly forward or not so? Am I going to, in, in the sense of like telling people my position, but in regards to my feelings throughout the entire process? Mm. I kind of felt like I wanted to be in the research, but I kind of felt like just by being in the research that kind of added an essence of bias, I kind of felt I had this tenseness and this open to scrutiny about my research and validity and in respects to how people were going to read it. I already wrote a little bit about like being a gender creative parent because I did that for my master's degree. So about people's, you know, it's open to interpretation by the reader, for example. Um, anyway, I went, obviously I was looking at my methodology and I went on a bit of a hunt and I found one and I thought, oh, interpretism might be good. That sounds really good. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'll look a bit deeper. Anyway, 
And one night I stumbled across heuristic inquiry. Um, and I don't know if you know it, it's very small, like there's not a lot of research about it. It's not, it's more used in like PhDs than ha has much published um, like articles using it. It's, it was very difficult anyway. But this kind of methodology allows you, the researcher, to be fully in it, fully in the process, uh, to be open about your position in there. And it, it, it involves the the whole methodology idea involves you being in the center of that being the participant so you're not the researcher you're like co-participants like with the you're like co-researchers co-participants you're all together so we like collaborate as in if my my participants are writing a questionnaire i will probably write a questionnaire um, and i will participate in those kind of respects but then there's several stages that you have you have to follow so once you've like gathered all your data, it's not just gathering it from the participants, it's gathering it from yourself as well. You go through like these six stages of like thinking about all the research and analyzing all the information. And then you create these themes, the themes at the end. But at the end of it, you then compile it into this what's called creative synthesis. So you create something, right? It's open to what you want to do. <laughs> so I was like, this is just the absolute idea of perfection. In regards to methodology, I don't have to shy away. I don't have to sit behind a wall. I don't have to defend my position so much. It still is open to the reader's interpretation, but I am fully here in the party. I'm riding the wave with everyone else. I'm part of that process. And then how they kind of all blend in. So my trans identity blends into my parenting, which blends into my research. Um, and then all of it blends into me personally. And so it just becomes, like you say, this giant piece of intimate research that I put myself in um, mm. and explore, explore myself, explore my parenting, explore my research, explore this parenting, wide community settings, as well as personal settings. So cool. It's a lot. It's a lot, I think. But I think now <laughs> I've got my methodology, I think um, it kind of makes it a little bit easier. Well, my next question is more about um, kind of just like doing a PhD, like not the research side of it, but just like being within university environments. I don't know, like I kind of just would love to hear more about like what you expected this to be like and if it meets up to those expectations, I guess. You were saying how you applied specifically to um, Brighton University because you knew that that was the place you wanted to be. And it sounds like that's a really like, I don't know, I could be wrong, but really inclusive environment and like a, a good environment to be in as, you know, as a trans person, as someone doing this research as well. So, yeah, I just love to hear more because you're also a lecturer. Mm. Yeah. How do you find yeah. being in academia? <laughs> um, the, the thing about uh, my PhD is, um, so I'm a distance learning student, so I've only been on the campus twice so so I'm not really immersed in any of the PhD kind of like environment shall we say and but what I can gather is if I was on campus it's kind of different to what it is distance um I did say to myself once I finish my master's degree um I, I don't want to do it distance I, I really want to be on campus um and then COVID hit so you know that was a bit of a slap in the face kind of thing so I couldn't anyway go to campus and then what I found difficult was is that accommodation we know is expensive just like in general so London and Brighton is just like a no-go really um but what I thought is that I maybe could apply for like student housing um but no that is more for like undergraduates 
So I found that extremely difficult. So the support in regards to accommodation, and I'm not just saying it's like Brighton, it's Brighton, problem Brighton kind of thing. It's, I think it's just, that's just how it is. The expectation is really that you don't stay on campus, but I really thought that it would benefit me to be on campus. So mm-hmm. that was quite difficult. So I didn't really get really get immersed in, I think, um, PhD life on campus. But then I, I, I really feel like I could have or would have, um, especially in the first year, I, I really probably could have benefited, benefited from it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year, but lucky for me, my ADHD, I hyper-focused and I had loads of writing. By the end of the first year, I got to my APR and they told me to slow down. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was like, okay, cool. That's nice. But now I'm in a freeze mode. Now my ADHD is like, I'm not going to do anything then. Fine. And it's been a very slow year this year um it's intense was it what i expected there's like yeses and no's like i knew there was going to be a lot of work but i didn't i didn't expect the waves just waves of things like waves of emotions or waves of knowledge or lack of knowledge or feeling like i'm very knowledgeable they're not knowledgeable at all and you know imposter syndrome is absolutely a thing which i i was literally not scoffing but like to my sister kept saying oh imposter syndrome is good i'm like what is that like is that even real like what come on now is it like really really like what the feeling itself that really exists like it does happen uh, and yeah and then i got it for quite a while like two months three months i didn't expect that like I knew about it, but I didn't expect it. Like I, and I thought, I don't know, maybe I was learning the lucky ones. Like I wasn't going to get it. I don't know why. Just thought, nah. Even if, you know, I feel quite confident. I feel like okay. I feel, I don't, I'm nervous about it. Like it, in the sense of like um, starting a PhD, but I feel like I'm quite confident about it. I could do this. And it didn't take me long. But I was like, I can't do this. Mm. It, I think second supervision. I'm not ready for this. That's so interesting. When I don't know, coming from your perspective as well, where. I don't know you kind of live your research already like I can understand why when you were like oh I didn't think I get imposter syndrome I was like oh I feel like Mm -hmm. most people feel like they're an imposter in in their line of study but actually when coming from where you are where it's like I literally have done I am parent I I am a gender open parent or gender creative Mm -hmm. parent I can understand why you would think this isn't going to happen to me like I live this shit and then it does hit you <laughs> second yeah. like I think it's because I already kind of felt that I knew that this was going to be difficult mm. like I already knew it's going to be difficult so surely I wouldn't get imposter syndrome when I know it's going to be difficult I know this is something I don't know so mm-hmm. how can now I feel like I don't know anything but then I got this overwhelming feeling like I didn't know anything but I, it's like how because I already knew I didn't know anything hence why I'm doing a PhD and I didn't know so much about the processes and like, but yeah, when it comes to my research, I kind of knew it. I know like, this stuff I've got to learn. There's, I know this is going to be a, an area that I've got to study. Um, and there's, there's so many more avenues that I could explore, but I kind of, I felt like I was sure I knew about what I didn't know about the fact that I knew it probably would be hard. Um, but yeah, just, then I got this, yeah, then it didn't. I think it's because I read like one or two books, and these books were way out of my league. And I, but I probably chose the wrong books. Mm. My, my supervisors explained it well. If you're reading material that you feel like, um, a way like not a way above your like capabilities or anything, just that you're not interpreting what they're saying very well, they themselves, the, the authors, are writing for a particular audience. 
it's mm-hmm. not anything to you. It may be say towards you know for them and the audience that they want to read those books, but in itself is exclusive because now they're not reaching another audience. So um, needless to say, obviously I, I got over that, and I think these one or two books probably were so philosophical mm. to my mind it then left so much to like there's so much I don't know and obviously I didn't it didn't take long before I was already saying I couldn't do this and then because it was during COVID I sometimes feel like when I speak about my experience it's like try not to relate to yourself unless if you've just started because I feel like the experience over in COVID is different to how it would have been before after like and, and and the experience after COVID is going to be different to the experience before as well. Like I'm just I can't say oh because COVID is kind of like now gone and I'm using like you know brackets and yeah yeah and now everyone's just acting like it never existed in the first place. Yeah, you know it's all going to be different in the last couple of years. It was a wave and mm. then a tsunami and then a little wave and then it was just like going back and forth and rocking at the shore. I don't know. I had a couple of breakdowns. I never thought I would do that. And I had one like last week, actually, you know, it just came out. And my supervisions are becoming longer now than they were at the beginning. um, Because I feel like I have so much to say, because I also feel like I don't have a lot of people to talk to, like in regards like academic stuff, because Mm -hmm. I'm also worried about saying things, saying the wrong things, saying too much, saying nothing at all, too little, saying the wrong, wrong things again getting myself into a deep hole and this might be like the ADHD so I say to my supervisors I'm not going to say very much but I feel like my ADHD is probably going to say enough and then I'm going to regret it the next day and then dig a deeper hole so I feel like at the moment the anxiety of knowing my ADHD might end up saying so much not enough or like creating this kind of idea of who I am in this moment Mm -hmm. that is not related to who I am on the most like average of days for myself kind of thing so I panic about that and I then I have so many questions like is this acceptable behavior in academia is this acceptable behavior should I be doing this in academia should I do that um is this okay is that not okay and um I have a question about this and I and I did this and this academic said this and this academic said that so I'm asking them all these questions and talking to them about some things that I've been doing within their research and then I just feel like um Poor them. <laughs> so like, I do say it though. I'm so sorry. And they're like, no, this is what we're here for. And I'm like, but really, are you here for two hours to look at me and then see me cry for 40 minutes? I don't know. Really? <laughs> I feel so sorry for them. I don't know. I was thinking about the other day, seeing how many people, you know, maybe tweeting, retweets if you've broken down your supervisions, just so we can see how common it is. Because mm. I also feel like it's not that common. I don't know. Have you ever? Have you ever broken down? I've been on the edge of tears several times. <laughs> okay, okay. You see, I just think that's, yeah, I think it's a lot more common, but I just feel like it isn't common, and then I feel so embarrassed after. I think I understand that feeling of, like, I don't know, almost, like, humiliation for being, like, vulnerable in that sort mm. of space. And I think it I think it comes from, like, what we think of academia as, as, like, this kind of very hierarchical, like, very high and mighty... Mm space and then to feel any form mm-hmm. of like vulnerability within it within like relationships within it sometimes you feel like you've overstepped or something mm-hmm. and, like, I once I once had like a time where um I needed to take some sick leave for my PhD and I um 
kind of I had to call my supervisor and say like I need to take some time out and after the call my partner had like come into the room just towards the end of the call and I was like oh I think I was like really inappropriate like I really regret everything that I said like I feel like I want to like take it all back like especially like at the end or something and they were like what the hell are you talking about like I listened (laughs) to the end of that call like you were just like completely normal and you know completely fine like the things Mm. you said were really okay but it's there's something about it it makes you feel a bit like icky and a bit like you're just Mm. talking to another human being about your life I think I agree when you put when you put it that uh, respect of like vulnerability as well because I think being some like so I failed school so uh, let's put that out there like because I think there's always an emphasis on like we must have been we must be really smart and doing really really well through like mm-hmm. ac- ac- academic achievements no that's not the case there's some very much seriously amounts of hard work that goes into this and I think that also then adds to this these waves in this roller coasters or saying but I think the vulnerability is if we perceive it to be this hierarchical structure or even if we just feel an essence of hierarchy in the room which we we will because there are supervisors there they're all knowing and they're all being they're seeing the you know that's what I feel like sometimes and you know the things that they say I'm like oh I didn't even think of that like just being a PhD student I think is just a vulnerable experience so and it doesn't matter I think where you put yourself even if I feel like you don't talk about your personal life you're a bit vulnerable because I think like I, I really don't think that I talk a lot about my personal life, but I really feel like I give a lot of information out, like about my life, especially my supervisors. But then I also think, well, it's important for them to consider where I'm coming from, like especially today or what's happened in the last month in my life, and you know, because that impacts my my studies, my personal life impacts my studies. And we're talking about my personal life in respect to being a parent, but my whole life, if I'm, you know, prior in my first year of studies with COVID you know I was on benefits and that was just a wave because when I got student finance they reduced my benefits which is fine they take consideration but they did it by an extreme amount because they overcalculated. Um, so I was going through this absolute financial crisis which nearly led me to leave a few times because I couldn't continue and I needed to get work and Mm-hmm. so it's taken on work and things like that so but this kind of just added to this absolute rampant difficulty upon difficulty upon difficulty upon difficulty during covid in my first year so was it what i expected no but i also didn't expect covid i also didn't expect um uh, universal credit to over calculate my income to them working um and fighting to work uh, finding little jobs, trying to ha- have a little one, you know, like relationships, you know, that I was in and out of a difficult situation there. And I was just like, this is my first year. I was on an absolute breakdown because our personal lives, because PhD isn't going on campus, isn't going to classes that we can disassociate once we close that door. We're doing the PhD in the room, you know, with our life. So mm-hmm. it, your life is still going around. Um, and our life is going into that. The difficulties that we have comes out and then our writing, if you wrote for like eight hours and it comes out absolute gibberish, it's because you could, you know, we could have difficulties. Since having my diagnostic in May, I've been able to start focusing what is ADHD, what is me, and I tell them these things, you know. So when they say I need to slow down, I say, this is not going to happen, I'm afraid. Mm. It's not, it's not, I can't, you, and you have to stop telling me to slow down because I, I can't slow down. Mm. Um it's 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 all or nothing pending deadlines is the best 
they're the best things. You want me to do my work, you give me a pending deadline, I'll do it for you and it, it will be done. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm kind of trying to work with them about what I need. The work itself, I knew it was going to be hard and a lot of work. But I really enjoyed the experience. I know I'm like talking about all these negatives and I'm talking about this. I enjoy this because now I can talk freely about gender queer parenting. And if I had a safe environment where I felt safe personally, um, I feel like I can have a really deep discussion about it. Like I can give you a really depth discussion about gender in children, gender in early years, uh, parenting, um, same-sex parenting, um, then gender creative, gender open, gender neutral parenting. I can give you so much information about it, which I didn't think I would be able to retain as much as I did. And there's probably so much more that I can do, but my wealth of knowledge between finishing my master's degree till now is, is so much, it's expanded so much that I really do feel like this is probably going to be my area of specialism if I really can uh, focus on it in some sort of respect. And the 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 confidence that I've had doing all these online um, conferences through putting myself forward with this PhD has kind of helped me talk about my research, I suppose, in a very short um, space of time, like 20 minutes to 10, 10 20 minutes. Um, but it's kind of it's helped my confidence, I'd like to say. So like with public speaking. Yeah, when I finish, like I know when we're students, it's really hard, tiring, stressful, this and the other. But when you finish and you're able to relax, you look back and you then only see the good times as well as a few bad. But now when we're in it, I see predominantly a lot of the bad and negative, the stressful things. But when I finish, which I'm hoping to finish by next year or the latest, the year after, the year after, because I've gone part time now, I think I'll look back and be like, overall, I've learned so much. Like I've learned so much from my supervisors. I've learned so much from myself. I've started to understand what I can do. But the learning experience is not only just the PhD. It's what I've been through during the PhD. I've learned what I can handle. I learned what my boundaries are. I learned um, what's ADHD. I've learned who I am. I've learned uh, differences in behavior of other people. I've learned how academia works, how to create a book chapter how to create a journal like there's so much so many like more skills that I've learned as well so that I can apply everywhere um so yeah the PhD is just the experiences I could see I, I never I would never say not to do it but equally I'm on the line of don't do it as well I'm one of those like don't do it yeah, but same. it's gonna be the best thing the best thing of your life if you do as well it's, it's gonna be stressful but it's gonna be the best thing but it also having done it it's too stressful to don't do it, but do do it. Like, cause you, you, you kick yourself if you don't kind of think I'm, I'm waiting way too, too much. Don't ask me. <laughs> don't ask me if anyone should do a PhD. Okay. So that's, fair enough. That's, that's where I'm living in at the moment. Well, I wasn't going to ask you that, but I was going <laughs> to ask you, what is one piece of advice you would give someone, particularly someone who wouldn't normally be the sort of person to go to university or might not normally think a PhD is for them? What one piece of advice would you give to someone who is looking to do a PhD? You have to be persistent. Like no matter how you feel, where like where you began or uh, where you are now, or whether you come through academia with flying A's or you come from no GCSEs at all and a failing college, and that's basically my background. Um, the fact is, it's just you have to persist. Uh, you have to push through. You have to push through if it's rubbish on the one day you just have to continue and um, if you're having a good day then you continue you just have to continue until you get to the goal that you want 
um, be adaptable to change like if something's not going the way you thought it would be then you then have to change yourself if things are getting too stressful you need to figure out what's gonna what you need to do to create a better environment for yourself if working between I don't know two in the afternoon till five o'clock at night is not working for you then you have to create you have to change to create that environment that works um you have to start adapting whether that's uh and that has to be i think quick because once you find in the perfect place or setting for a particular thing that helps you the best um then it's only going to be positive from then on if somebody says look i really think you should apply for extension then just do it that's what I say to my students, just do it because what, what they're going to say, no, and okay, but if you've got an extra week and you can utilize it, then why not? Because my undergraduate degree, I um, I started to, I was coming out at the time as trans and I was getting my um, diagnostic, et cetera, and I was meeting my GP and I was going through that just before my like last submission. And I was like two or three points off from a different grade class. And I put in for that extension. And now to this day, I always say to people, if you could utilize something, you do it and then you change what you need to do to get the outcome that you want as closest to the outcome. You know, like be prepared for the unknown. Yeah. I didn't know COVID was coming. I also didn't think I was going to have imposter syndrome. I, the unknown, the fact that even if we feel like when we know about it, doesn't mean things aren't going to happen. So then those feelings you now got to deal with you got to deal with those feelings you got to deal with those issues you got to deal with those um, situations those relationships that break all those relationships come the 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 covid that's coming and how we deal with that you you know you there's so much the unknown in respect to like um you didn't know this before and that kind of affects your research as well it affects you personally um people on twitter is not as nice as you thought or they are actually as nice as you thought um this supervisor's not as good as you thought they were going to be or they are amazing and they are so good and so supportive um you know these are the things that you just don't know what's going to happen but i I suppose if you have persistence no matter about the unknown you will still push through you know because you're that you're changing you're changing environment if the supervisor's not as good as you thought you think uh well i'm still going to complete this but I need to change my supervisor or I need to change the communication and I'm going to try this and put, you know, put forward what I think is preferable. This, these working hours aren't working for me or I've not done anything for three months. Oh yeah. But then at the end of those three months, you pick that back up again. You're still persisting. You're so you, the inevitable is going to happen, which is that you're going to finish um, and you're going to do it. Um, and that. I think the overall thing is no matter where you come from, like for even for those that's not thinking about doing a PhD, um, the thought should always be there. It should always be there. You should always have that thought there because there's so many people that uh, I think look up to us doing a PhD and I sit there and think, I was in your position once. I was that same very person. I didn't think I was going to do it. I had no GCSEs. I failed college. I had to go to night school. I just about passed. And you'll be surprised what you can achieve mm. uh, if you really persist through it. Where So where can people find you? Like on social media? Um, where can people hear from you? I'm on Twitter for most academic stuff. So I'm Max, M-A-X, Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S underscore P-H-D. Fab. I have one final question. Um, okay. How do you hope your research will bend boundaries? In, I just think it's more going to like expand them rather than. I'm ho- I'm hoping like it's a circle to me that this spectrum idea is actually like a circle that we all just are in the middle and we're all just diverse. For some, I like to think it's got to move these lines, 
move them out from where where once they you know situated that line for them you know so i'm hoping just this kind of idea just expands people's boundaries of gender and parenting as well it's mm. the kind of ideas of what parenting is about what we can do in parenting to really support our children that's a kind of hope i hope you enjoyed that interview now back to Eber and megan for a debrief yeah so welcome back to the debrief guys so let's talk about our key takeaways there was so much i want <laughs> i have 40 key takeaways. <laughs> yeah I'll let, you, I'll let you go first Ibru. like what, what were one of yours um so yeah megan i'm in the same boat i have like four key takeaways but i'm gonna just start with the one that really struck me something max said that really struck me is that gathering data is about gathering yourself and that comes down to creative synthesis. And I was like, whoa, okay, hold on. <laughs> let me process that. Let me, let me reflect on this. Because they said all of this data blends into me personally. And yes, like I wrote these things down because they said things that I was like, I need to write this down. Mm. So, mm-hmm. you know, and cite them. But Um, So I was just thinking the making of intimate research is so much about like exploring ourselves and something that I have been saying repeatedly is that research is doing me-search and I feel like me-search sometimes through the research we do because we have some kind of personal drive behind it. Um, We may discover certain truths that are very vulnerable and intimate and there's so much potential in writing when it hurts and that's something that made me think when Max was speaking and one question I had on my mind was like why are academics who write in areas that have like personal significance often marginalized in terms that their writing that is breaking boundaries is rejected from high-ranking journals because I have heard of this firsthand And it really pains me because it's probably something that's going to happen to me as well. And um, I think there's this longstanding notion of like academics being safe and regarded as authentic so long as they stick to academic traditions that may be outdated, though. And I think there is so much more value in engaging in personally meaningful scholarship, because I think only then can we actually provide accurate knowledge of the world and fields that have been underexplored, particularly when we ourselves come from underrepresented like communities. And so I just like realized once again, like academic work coexists and is so deeply intertwined with the personal and subjective, which there is so much value in that. And yeah, I am still blown away by the interview. Yeah, that was really, it, yeah, it was really like interesting. And I guess this is a little bit, one of my takeaways <laughs> One of was like the, I think Max was saying that your life, your personal life is still happening while you're doing your mm, PhD. Yeah. And that kind of um, hit me a little bit because, uh, yeah, been lots of stuff has been going on recently. And it's just that trying to, in PhD mode and life mode is mm. hard. I think it's hard in any job or anything you're doing, but I think is it the flexibility of it that makes it more difficult, or sometimes the 
I don't know, using your, I don't know, like using your brain in academia and stuff. I don't know if there's like a different switch or it's, I guess it's a deep work we mm. talked about before. It's like, because you have to be really in it. It's really hard to be really in something and then also have big things happening mm. in your life mm. and then switch between the two. Whereas like maybe in a job, if you're like, okay, I can just get these tasks mm. done mm. and then you can go back to the normal stuff, the difficult life stuff. I don't know. Yeah, that was something that... Because yeah, d- I was just like, that's true. Mm. <laughs> like, no, it was like, they say something like, um, when you turn your laptop off at the end of the day or when you go home at the end of the day, the PhD is still in the room with you or something like that. Yeah. And that like, really struck me as well as like, I don't know, you're right. It's such... I don't know, the personal suddenly becomes so big in research, I feel. Mm. And I feel like we talk about work-life balance so much or it's being talked about in academia so much. But honestly, I feel like there is no balance. Mm. We are on, perhaps we are pursuing that balance, but I would be lying if I said I didn't check my emails after five because I do. Mm. And it's very hard to shut your brain off. It's very difficult because it's almost like academic fear of missing out yeah yeah it was a yeah very good conversation and like very interesting Sarah did you have any key takeaways or um I could share another <laughs> one which is maybe a little bit away from this theme so sorry I'm like I'm talking around it because I'm like this <laughs> 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 point is that Max said that they didn't um really think that they would experience imposter syndrome mm, yeah. and I I kind of feel like that as well. I haven't experienced it yet, but I I feel like I've got a little bit of an arrogant... I don't know if it's an arrogant thing, but I was like, oh yeah, I kind of know what's going on. I know I need to learn. That's where I am now. I'm at the point before Max mm. felt. <laughs> before the fall. And yeah. I, fe- I felt a bit like... <laughs> I didn't yeah. even felt like a dick, but I was sitting there thinking, oh God, that's how I felt. I feel now. And maybe yeah. it's coming. <laughs> so Can- I don't know. I, it felt like... Uh, that's, the ghost of Christmas future or something. <laughs> that, that's such me. an important point. Can I just add something? Because mm. there's this book out there and it's titled um, Inclusion on Purpose. Mm-hmm. And um, it's by this author, Rushika Talsian. And I might be butchering the name. Um, I apologize deeply for that. But she um, basically talks about how like intersectionality theory was absent when this concept of like imposter syndrome emerged. And that's why like individuals who find themselves in like certain marginalized groups, may it be um, being of color, um, non-binary, trans, um, from like lower working class conditions. There's like different dynamics at plays, like systemic racism and like systemic bias that like, affects imposter syndrome in ways that these individuals find themselves in more precarious situations and more vulnerable situations and yeah so that like I don't know it just made me think um because I think oftentimes because Max was talking in the cons like in the context of having like supervisor meetings as well when this like pops up like Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Mm. And mm. I don't know. It. I mean, obviously, I can only speak on behalf of myself, but I think oftentimes I am thinking, oh, well, I am not from here. I'm a foreigner. English is my third language. 
Am I doing enough? Am I good enough? So I feel like imposter syndrome just like really goes hand in hand with other like intersectional layers of everyone's identities. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting. I was reading a book, which wasn't a very good book, but <laughs> there was a point that I thought was good. It was like about um, uh, how it was talking about imposter syndrome and how <laughs> in like uh, like middle class white people, this is like in a workplace context, often get opportunities that are above what they can do. So that's their experience of imposter syndrome. But then um, black, brown, trans, you know, marginalized people are there and they are actually very unusual in that space Mm. so their imposter syndrome comes from a completely different position to white middle class imposter syndrome Mm. (laughs) and they're more likely to actually not have the experience than Mm. other groups so it's like we're all using the same word to describe something but it's like so different our actual experience like you said that yeah yeah Mm. it's Um. almost like when you're marginalized like imposter syndrome is almost like what society puts upon you whereas Mm. like Mm. I don't know, when you're just given something that's way above what you can do because you fit the aesthetic of what that company's looking for, then that's sort of, like, not forcing you by society. That's just, like, literal, like, well, I can't do this thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? <laughs> it's, like, logical. Yeah, it's, like, it's, like, I don't... it's funny. It's a different, it's a different mm. experience, but we're using the same word. But, yeah, I think the, the, the thing about imposter syndrome, it was, like... Yeah, it was interesting because... Again, I was seeing maybe a before and after of my future. (laughs) It felt like a read. It was like, I was like, oh, you you think that you're going to be fine, but maybe not. Not that Max was being negative. No, no, no. No, it was just my reflection. Did you have any um, key takeaways, Sarah? I think I did have one, but I think it's quite similar to everything that we've already talked about. I think it was that idea of how you know when the PhD is in the room with you when your personal life's all going on um sometimes it is important to be sort of vulnerable with other people around you and I think we had someone write in about the podcast and say like oh thank you for starting these conversations like about vulnerability for a PhD students mm-hmm. it's something that's not talked about very much and I think Max talked about it in a really cool way just kind of being like they're quite an I don't know they were sim- simultaneously as they were saying, I think I'm quite closed off, but they're also like quite an open book um, in talking about how things have been for them. And I don't know, like they were, when they were talking about how um, they'd almost as because of being a marginalized person, because they were like their benefits got messed up and like they were in like quite precarious situation when they started their PhD, that almost caused them to literally leave their PhD that made me think about like the vulnerability, like the material vulnerability of being like an like a marginalized person doing a PhD. Like, if for a lot of people, right, doing a PhD, if their boiler breaks, it will be really stressful and annoying and disruptive, and probably like hit them financially. But if your boiler breaks and you're working class, or you don't have a supportive family, or you know any sort of material or financial safety net, then that could be the end of your PhD. And that's like such a different, when I think about it like that, that like hits hard. Cause you're just like, that is such a material difference. Mm, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think the financial side, that was interesting to hear about. And the financial side of like um, doing the PhD, like funding is 
for me, if I didn't have funding, I wouldn't yeah, have done it same. because I can't yeah. afford it. <laughs> like yeah. because yeah. you can't afford to live for three years, four or four years, and anyway. But yeah, that that thing of even though we get funding, it's not. It was a real pay cut for me, like from go from working to this, and it's like I moved to Liverpool. I like Liverpool, but it's like I I couldn't I couldn't have done it in London even if I got funding because yeah. there's not mm-hmm. enough money. This it's it's kind of like yeah there is actual there's a lot of material decision. Oh, that was one thing I thought was interesting with Max was that they said, "Oh, I'm going to study in Brighton because I'm not moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to live too mm-hmm. far away." Actually, I don't remember their living situation specifically, but yeah, I I remember that there's this one department I want to go with and mm. Yeah, that sometimes it feels like you have to just apply any, everywhere and just go wherever mm. you're told. So it feels a little bit less, I don't know, free. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because they also are like, that's the department that it will be supportive of this research. Yeah. And therefore, yeah, I want, exactly. I'm supportive of me, so I want to be there. And that like mm-hmm. interesting thing about how you sometimes do have to make tactical decisions about where you'll be like safe and able to do your research. Oh. You know? Mm. Oh yeah, I definitely chose a city yeah. for a reason. I'm not gonna go live <laughs> in yeah. a village. Um, no, no, nothing against villages, but you know, mm. I was like, okay, Liverpool feels like there's a decent amount of people who are yeah. who are diverse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I need to go there. Yeah. Can I can I share something else? Like on the topic of yeah, like of neutralizing gender terminology because oh yeah i was gonna say we should like there's also loads of takeaways about the research <laughs> yes, the, the PhD yeah stuff. so like um you know i just found it very fascinating how like the topic of broadening language to to be a more like gender creative parent and um the research like revolving around that i think so particularly when I read news, I like often read news about like Germany and France because, you know, I, I was raised in Germany and I'm just fascinated by politics, but they also drive me crazy. But um, I think one thing that have been has been like very much at the center of like controversy is like the the question at heart, whether to include more inclusive pronouns and to make that public. Um, especially in like very gendered modern foreign languages. Um, And I just (laughs) read this article. So there's a very well-known and established dictionary, um, how do you call it, brand? Yeah, yeah, in France. The Oxford Dictionary. (laughs) Exactly. Something equivalent in France. And they recently tried adding gender-neutral pronouns but the Minister of like National Education rejected this, arguing that inclusive writing does not have a future. What? Yes. <laughs> Very shocking. I mean, again. Very, again, like, it shouldn't be shocking anymore at this point, but it is very shocking because, you know, you think you live in 2022 and things that have happened for centuries are still happening and history is, like, not linear. Things are just happening side by side and... I was just thinking through the things that Max mentioned regarding like language, there is so much power in language. I feel like it's it's music, it's a tool, it can be a weapon, um, but also it, it's alive. Like we've, like, you know, looking at how language just evolved basically like a plant, like it adapts automatically 
You know, it、mm. starts with little things like、um, accents or slangs that then become like almost unquestionably part of the language itself. And so, like the linguistic resistance to these changes just doesn't make any sense, in my opinion. Like I agree, it's important to learn how to conjugate verbs and tenses correctly when you use or learn a foreign language, and I think it's also important to. To kind of have an understanding of how to pronounce things, but in an inclusive manner, because we all have speaking one native tongue, you use specific muscles. So it's、mm. normal that you're gonna have an accent in a different language because there are muscles involved that you have never used before. But、um, like the attempt to like embrace gender-neutral language to facilitate a more harmonious and inclusive environment.、Um, Does not really collide with wanting to achieve all of these aims of learning a language.、Um, so I don't know. There needs to there needs to be、um, changes that have to happen in like education. That's where we need to start. And I think cases like that, like that one dictionary,、um, wanting to adopt something that was rejected. Just it's very unfortunate, and yeah. So yeah, the whole point. I think this was very, very. I think fascinating. Yeah, and I think like as Max was kind of saying,、um, they wanted to provide more research about.、Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's not gender neutral. Is it gender neutral parenting? Gender、That's、inclusive names, but I think gender creative、okay. is the one they usually. Gender creative. Okay, yeah, it's, and it's like. Doing that research to, I don't know. I think for me, with my research, I'm like, I want to do it so there's、mm-hmm. evidence <laughs> of how things are working. And I think that was kind of what Max was saying as well. It's like, I want to learn about the impact of、um, gender、uh, creative、mm-hmm. parenting, and I want to prov- like provide information about it. And yeah, I thought that was like very interesting and. Hearing about how, like, I think it was in the seventies, there was like feminist parenting,、mm. or again, not remembering the terms, but that how that didn't include boys and the stereotypes that they were being like subject to as well. Like、mm. it was more like supporting the girls to be more broad, but not looking at the male the、mm. stereotypes of like、yeah. masculinity and stuff like that. I thought, I was like, that is a very good point, basically. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it makes yeah. it makes sense that we should not just, I don't know. Yeah, to broaden it and and learn a bit more about that. Yeah, I think that was really cool how they talked about the history of like different parenting styles because、mm-hmm. I think it is something that people when they hear about gender creative parenting often think it's like quite extreme in a way or sort of like I don't know quite scary to be like what you're gonna give you're not gonna give your child a gender and you're gonna let them choose for themselves、yeah. when they're older like what are you doing and then to like show that、mm. there is a history of how a lot of people have been. Raised at least in the UK, like over the last like fifty years, that shows there has been, I don't know, like different movements where gender has been questioned in different ways, which I think is cool.、Mm. Yeah, I think, and it, it just kind of makes you reflect. I think it's one of those things. I think we were mentioning before, like parenting and being child, childhood are, are quite. They can be happy, fun stories, or they can be something that's quite personal that's difficult to share, but. It was just in my head listening to the interview. I was like, "Hmm, what would have? How would having this parenting style have impacted、mm. me, or how would that have 
these and like you know as you grow up you're like oh okay gender stereotypes or gender roles you you know that they're just hugely problematic and it's like but they were so like normalized like it's like very normal to be like oh okay here's all the pink stuff here's all the voice like Mm. stuff and so thanks so much max for coming on and being a guest on bending boundaries Uh, we'll be back again in one month's time um thanks for listening See ya. So that's it from us for now. Thanks for listening to Bending Boundaries, a podcast sponsored by the Northwest Social Science Doctoral Training Partnership, which aims to encourage a broader range of applicants to showcase our work and the work of others and amplify the intersectional voices of diverse PhD students. We'll be back with our next guest in one month's time. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to tell us how, a bit more about how you're bending boundaries in or out of academia, tweet us at, at Bending Boundaries Pod or follow us on Instagram at Bending Boundaries Podcast or you can even email us at Bending Boundaries Pod at gmail.com. Okay, bye. Thank you. See, See you next time.